0: And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. This latest episode is an encore edition. We go back in the files to last May, May 30th to be exact, of 2023. The inside story from the front lines of Ukraine. Here it is. (laughs) Hello there. Peter Mansbridge here from uh, Toronto for this day. Yes, special program today. We are going to deal with Ukraine as we always do on Tuesdays and we'll deal with it, with among other things, with Brian Stewart. But the special part of today is going to be an insider's story. The story of Brandon Mitchell. He's from Mirror Machine, New Brunswick. He's a medic inside Ukraine. He's out right now on a short to will leave, and then he'll be going back in, and he has quite the story to tell. I'm looking forward to talking to him uh, in the next little while. Uh, we could talk about Alberta today. I mean, the election result came last night. Danielle Smith will be still the Premier of Alberta, and with all the consequences that uh, may bring. Uh, the pollsters were divided on what was going to happen in this um, election, or at least their forecasts. At different points during the campaign, seemed to have it up in the air, but as it turned out, Smith won a majority government, clear victory for her. What will it do to the national landscape? Well, that's probably going to take a little bit to figure out. you can be sure we'll talk about it tomorrow on Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with, uh, with Bruce Anderson. But today, we're sticking to our guns. We're sticking to Ukraine as our story. And uh, we'll start with a, a short, this time a very short, you know, four or five minutes uh, with Brian Stewart to sort of capture where are we on this story this week. Um, so let's get right to that. Let's listen to Brian see what he uh, what he has to say uh, about that. Here he is, our uh, our foreign correspondent and war correspondent, Brian Stewart. Brian, it seems like we've been talking for weeks, if not months, about the expected Ukrainian offensive. Obviously, we're closer to it now than ever, but what's the latest we know about it?
1: Well, the latest we know is uh, all the pieces seem in order right now in terms of the place. We just don't know where that place is or where it's going to move. But definitely the signals coming out of Kyiv are, are that it's going to come very soon, a day, uh, maybe a week. You know, Peter, to me, it has a feel of like May 29th or May 30th. 1944. Uh, Everyone knows that D-Day is coming. It can't be more than a week or two weeks away. The nervousness is everywhere throughout the the world, really, because the course of the war is going to depend upon what happens on D-Day. And so we have that sort of tension today where everybody's concerned about it. Um, what's striking in terms of the Ukrainians are they're making all the kind of moves of striking deep inside Russian lines at defenses, at command posts, and ability to move that is very equivalent to the strikes inside the German lines just before Normandy, the landing at T-Day. Uh, the, the Russians are doing the same thing. They're throwing everything they can. Uh, though they don't have much precision weaponry, at the build up of the Ukrainians, they've had managed to hit a few major ammunition dumps, and apparently just recently, a an airfield in Ukraine, which has taken five of uh, Ukraine's very limited aircraft out of operation. So both sides now are are making the moves you would expect on the very eve, and uh, the the Ukrainians are doing everything they can to scramble the Russian mind and leave them as uncertain as possible.
0: Uh, you know, I love that you're using the D-Day uh, 44 comparison. We're, we're coming up just next week on the 79th anniversary of D-Day. Uh, and as a result, next Tuesday, we're going to use our, our our time with you to actually sort of reflect back on on right. D-Day. I mean, it was, you know, you've often, you know, said to me, not only was it the greatest, you know, seaborne invasion uh, in history at that moment, but... Um, but it was probably the biggest gamble of any gamble taken by a a major force in terms of a a battle. Absolutely.
1: And everyone was holding their breath. I mean, had D-Day been a failure, uh, you know, a lot of historians say there's no value in the what-ifs of history. I think there's enormous value in looking at the what-ifs. If D-Day had failed – that would have uh, eliminated the liberation of Europe in 44, 45. I think the uh, the Allies would have had to regroup uh, through Italy and the south, and I think the the war would have ended likely with a Russian push from the coming in from the east, but also the use of uh, atomic weapons in Germany. I think we have to remember they were well underway the Manhattan Project uh, in America, and the states at the time, and they would have had them ready for use in late forty five. Or at the same time, they used them in Japan, and I think that would have gone into use in Germany and ended the war there. But it's
0: incredible changes would have taken place. Well, we will um, we will discuss uh, that and other aspects. Both you and I have spent a lot of time on uh, on, on looking back at D-Day from the very site, as we've both right. been uh, attended a number of the Different anniversaries uh, that have taken place on the uh, Normandy beaches. Okay, back to Ukraine uh, for a moment in this uh, shortened uh, version this week. Um, one, of the thing that's, uh, one of the things that's happened here most recently is there, there have clearly been incursions into the Russian territory, but it appears they're being made uh, on behalf of the Ukrainians, but by Russians themselves, rebel Russians. What right. can you tell us about that force?
1: Yeah, they're a small force, maybe 150, nobody knows for sure, uh, got in for over two days inside Russia and the Belgorod uh, region. And uh, they managed to, you know, take a village and, and move, move around for two solid days, and then re- retreat in good order. And that's kind of shocking news. I mean, where were the Russian defenses? How could they possibly retreat in good order? Once, once again, the Russian Air Force was a no-show. It, it should have, can you imagine if a force Like that one in the United States, what the US Air Force would have been able to do uh, literally within hours. Uh, The Russians failed. But I think more than anything else, I don't think it was entirely operated by either you. The Ukrainian government, but I think the purpose was to show the Russians that their, their lines, this 800-kilometer-long front, is actually add another three to 400 kilometers to that, because the Russians are very short of manpower as it is. This is going to force them to start building their forces along their own border much more, and going to take up more of those weapons. So that puts a real nervousness into Russia, but where they may strike next, and also How on earth do we manage to have enough manpower for both the war in Ukraine and now to guard our our own borders sufficiently well? This is creating great nervousness in uh, Russia and certainly a lot of uh, vocal complaints and and worries among the military bloggers, the right-wing nationalist force in Russia that are able to speak out in criticism of, of the current government.
0: All right. Brian, uh, just giving us the headlines this week, but uh, look forward to our discussion next week on D-Day and looking forward to um, the conversation we're about to have with uh, a Canadian medic who has been working in Ukraine uh, right at the battlefront. So, Brian, for this, thank you very much. Talk to you next week.
1: Okay, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Brian Stewart joining us as he has done uh, for most of the past year, uh, giving us the latest update on the s- situation in Ukraine. But as we said, this is a special day today uh, because we have another guest on the Ukraine story, uh, and, and a guest basically from the front lines. He's a Canadian by the name of Brandon Mitchell. He's from Miramichi, New Brunswick. A um, young fellow, uh, joined the uh, Canadian militia, military militia, after, um, after he'd uh, finished the schooling that he uh, uh, chose, to, uh, chose to do, and then he um, joined the British military. And worked with them for a while. Then he was off after the British military experience. He was off, uh, in fact, he was working, I think, for IKEA assembling furniture at a, at a certain point uh, when he decided, I want to go to Ukraine. I want to help. I want to do something uh, to help the situation there. And so he took medic training. And, uh, well, he'll tell this whole story to us because he's, he's been involved right at the front For a good length of time now, he's seen some. Well, you you can imagine the kind of things that he's he's likely seen. We're going to uh, we're going to talk to him, uh, but first of all, let's take a break so we don't have to interrupt our conversation uh, with Brandon Mitchell. So, first of all, this quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to uh, The Bridge on this Tuesday. You're listening on uh, Sirius XM channel 167 Canada Talks or on your favorite podcast platform. All right, time for our uh, special interview uh, with Brandon Mitchell, a Canadian who has been serving uh, in Ukraine. So let's get to that right now. So, Brandon, whatever made you want to go to Ukraine, to get like right into the action, in the battle zone. What made you want to do that? I
2: didn't plan on that. That just sort of happened. Um, for me, I'd been out of the Army a long, long time. That's Never the, been on a combat tour. That's the, the British Army, right? And I joined the Canadian Reserves. Right. Uh, I was in Gagetown for a couple of years. Uh, I, I had an option to join the British Army, and and that seemed like an adventure. You know? where, where was I going to go? I was going to go to Petawawa or I'll, I'll take a chance somewhere else. I was 18, 19. Yeah. I, I, I didn't, I didn't go to Ukraine with any of those expectations at all, Peter. Um, I went there possibly to be a humanitarian worker. I did not know what that was. I was asked after my first week, do I want to join a combat medical battalion? So I came to help. So I, I I had a I had a little ponder for about 30 seconds and I signed up. Okay, I want to get to that decision making but
0: first of all so it was Canadian military reserves then mm-hmm. the British army for a while. Yes. Then you ended up in in Sweden working at an IKEA store building furniture and then all this happened. The whole Ukraine uh, idea it,
2: happened. Long, 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 rich tapestry of life. But uh, yeah, I was quite proud. I, I I worked with stone. I made some beautiful kitchens. I can help you out with that someday. <laughs> okay, I may need that. Okay, yeah. so you so in in thirty
0: seconds or what have you, when asked whether or not you could go right into the uh, basically go into the action as a matter. You decided yes. Now, like, yes. W- w- what made that decision? Why did you, I mean you knew what you were getting into by that point? This is a brutal, ugly war, and you knew you were going to see it right up front. What made you want to do that?
2: Well, I wanted to help. I, I don't have any children. Um, I, I'm actually a member of a twelve step program, which are really well known in Canada. Uh, a b- a big part of it was. Community service, you know, o- over 11 years without a drink or a drug, I learned a lot about community service, uh, volunteering with kids and amateur boxing. That was a big joy, but but I just on the pure chance to help. And what am I going to do in Ukraine? I don't know, uh, but that was my chance. Do you take it? Do you step up to the plate or do you not? Nobody's interested in something you didn't do, but that's that's not why I went there. I had an opportunity, and I—I'm yeah, an atheist, uh, if I can be honest. But I—I—I I, I, I talk to God sometimes. I—I've I, been talking to God over the past year, year and
0: a half. And what does God tell you about the kind of things you've seen, which you must have seen, like very early on in this, in this venture of yours?
2: Well, for me, the biggest thing that helps. And I've learned this over the years. If I've got a choice to make, uh right or wrong, you know, anything in life, anything at all, you know, when it comes down to something, the answer comes to me in a millisecond. And everything else that comes after one second later, that's rationalization. That's fear, that's justification, that's lazy, that's uh yeah. nine times out of ten, if I follow that that impulse, when I'm in a good spirit. It's never led me wrong. When did you first realize the, not realize,
0: I'm sure you realized it even before you got there, but when did you first see the horrors of this war?
2: How long did it take before you, you were like right in front of it? So we went to Kiev, we joined our battalion. I did a 10-day medic course, very extensive course. By the end of that, the Battle of Kiev was mostly over. I was sent to the Zaporizhia front on the south of the war. Okay. That's quite neglected. My first month before I ever seen any combat, I worked in a hospital uh, and it was the closest hospital to the Russian lines. A quiet day was 20 guys that would come through. Um, I I seen what good and bad hospital care is pre pre hospital care. Um, I, I learned to work on them straight off the ambulance and, uh, I, I also seen civilians I seen women uh older women injured there too um yeah I I was I was there pro- probably around the 6 week to 2 month mark yeah I was I had blood on me Now how did
0: you how did you deal with that I mean I I assume somewhere in there you knew what you were likely to see and deal with and yet then suddenly when you're confronted with the reality of it it's a whole different thing
2: i never said this before and i've done a few interviews never with someone such as yourself um but um it sounds a bit sick but i was quite pleased with myself by by how i was able to to conduct myself uh i learned training and and you know this it's so simple uh when a casualty comes in there's an algorithm a protocol to follow and all that is, is to clear a pathway for a surgeon and an anesthesiologist. And it's 20 minutes, 25 max. And, and they're off to Nipro to, to further cities, you know, for further care. Um, I I turned 30, I turned 35 years old in that hospital. You know, i had done a lot of things in my life, a bit of this, a bit of that. But I I, I was real proud of myself, you know, um, how I conducted myself. And uh, it was, it was real simple, Peter. Um only once did I ever get sick there. Uh and and that was actually a conscious woman. Um I don't want to be too graphic on your show, but she'd lost half her hand and I I, I was holding her skin and also a, a vomit bag, but she was crying and uh and I got really dizzy. But the doctor had seen that before. Uh many times he are you he didn't speak good English. He said, Are you gonna be okay? And I didn't know, and, and I just took ten seconds, five seconds. Who knows how long I took? But I said, "Yeah, I'm okay." Uh, that that's the only time I've ever, I've ever paused. And, and that was two months into the war, two and a half months into the war. I've I've done more since. Well, when when you say uh,
0: you are proud of yourself, I think I understand what you're saying. But but let me just explore that for a minute. When you say you're proud of yourself. Are you mm-hmm. proud of yourself? is because you didn't turn away, because you didn't kind of run from it.
2: Uh well, no, mostly in the hospital, it's it's how I was able to conduct myself to help others. Um it, but to be an asset, you know, like to be to be like a referee, like a good referee, you'd never know he was there. You know what I mean? He he's not interfering too much, but he's definitely part of the game. Uh that's what I was proud of. Uh it was almost like I don't want to. I don't want to talk down to myself. It's almost like a dog. Like I was saying to myself, "Good boy, good boy." <laughs> um, when it came more to the front, uh, casualty evacuations, civilian evacuations. Later on, uh, I, I've even been wounded myself. Um, uh, I didn't internalize it so much like that. Scared going in, very scared going in. Not scared during the work. And then at the end of the day, whenever you can put your head on the pillow or, or I started smoking again during the war quite heavily, um, I said, by God, we did, we did that. So in the hospital, I could internalize it like that good boy, just like my dog. Yeah, I don't know how else to describe it. Not so much in the war war. So at a certain point,
0: you went from hospital to the front. Uh, How how did that come about? Was
2: that your decision or did they ask you to do this? Well, my battalion, uh, my battalion, hospitalers, we're unique. We send ambulance teams. We send medical support teams to join a different brigade, a different battalion all across the war. And it could be for a month, two months, uh, whatever the need, you know, in emergencies, they've gone for less. Uh, I have, but uh, it was simply we're leaving the hospital. We're moving down to the line within that same area. So the hospital would have been 25 kilometers from the line. Now we're going to live. Now we're going to live about five kilometers from the Russians and, and sit on a radio and wait, wait and wait and wait. You ever hear about the waiting in war? You know, people read book. I read books about war before war. Um, there's a lot of waiting Peter. Yeah. You know, we're,
0: we're, we're sitting here, um, you know, you're, you're in Sweden, I'm in, I'm in Canada as we do this. And, you, you know, behind me, you can see it, the audience can't see it because they're just listening. But behind me are pictures of, of my dad and the aircraft he served in during the Second World War in the wow. RAF, you know, and one of them is a, a Lancaster bomber. And, the, and he used to talk about that too, the waiting, right? They didn't fly every night of the war. There were a lot of nights. I mean, there were some nights they didn't know whether they'd be flying or not, but it was waiting, waiting to fly and waiting to go on missions, um, knowing full well that the odds you know, were, were often stacked against them that they'd ever get back. And on some of these things that you did, some of these situations at the front you were in, there were a lot of people getting killed or severely yes, no. wounded. Uh, and not not just the, the soldiers fighting, but including the medics trying to help them. That's correct. So That's correct. You knew this going in. You knew this every day. Uh, how did you deal with that?
2: Mm. So I feel, you know, that good boy. Um, I, I feel an obligation. Uh, I have friends, and I have good personal friends that... You know, I I can't control the way the world works. Those are the people you should be talking to. But I'm I'm Canadian. I grew up in Canada. That's what earns me the privilege. And because I got blown up and CBC foreign correspondents like me, I do I did well on the analytics. I've I've learned about these things. Those are the people you should be talking to. But I can't control the world. Um, they're good to me, and uh, I don't know they're, they're as friendly as. As a Newfoundland kitchen party, the night they could teach us a few things. But the more they did for me, the more I felt uh, invested. You understand? Mm -hmm. Really invested. Um, I don't get scared of of what you might think. I get scared of what I thought I would get scared of. I get scared. I won't do the right thing. Uh, I I used to run the trucks, uh, the casualty evacuations for the back to an ambulance from a four-wheel drive. Um, and when you have to go back in after it's been quite uh, violent, the, the town of Solodar, northeast of Bokhmut, that's most of my war. I know Soledad. Um My biggest fear was when I was driving, driving them out to switch them to an ambulance that I'd get scared and I wouldn't go back in. I was scared of getting scared. But I always did my job. Uh, And a little bit more evidence, you know, just like, uh, you know, like a professional athlete. Have you ever listened to them talk after their career is over and they reflect? They didn't know what they could do till they did it. But the more they did it, the more confident they were. They were just shooting pucks. I don't want to compare it to that, but I'm, I'm no matter how much experience, I'm still scared that someday maybe I won't do the right thing. But that's it
0: some of your friends um were in that situation and we heard just uh, again recently of a you know a couple of canadians um who were in as uh, similar roles as as you performed who didn't make it out
2: um I know the I know the road I know the very road they were killed on um yeah I never met those 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 ones and those boys in particular no
0: tell me about Tell me, tell me about some of, I, I, you know, I don't want this all to be about you and I know you don't want it all to be about you, but you know, I I do want to talk about the people you were helping there, but just before I I get to it, tell me about, I guess the missions that will haunt you for the rest of your life, the, the moments that you, you won't forget. Um, Tell me about one of those.
2: Yeah, I, um, before you even finish your sentence, I knew what I was going to tell you about. Um, In September, we took back a significant amount of, um, of, of territory from the Russians. And everyone always hears about Bakhmut, Bakhmut in the news. And uh, that's the way it works. But north of there was a city called Lyman or Liman, as we call it. And all those villages, you can drive up, you can drive across a bridge that you probably shouldn't drive across. And You go to all these villages and uh, you know, names that you couldn't even pronounce, and I, I've learned to. And I remember being involved with the civilian evacuations. Uh, these were people who, who lived under Russian occupation, for, and they, they would tell us stories. You know, I'd spent a lot of weeks working in those towns. They told us it was bad when they came in, and it was bad when they went out. Um yeah, no, I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll tell you too quick. one day, and we couldn't work at night, an old man and he he might have had dementia um he was a bit trouble, troublesome, you know, and stubborn to leave. and, and we were going to be working in that town for a week to try to get people out uh, to humanitarian organizations. M- Medicine Sound Frontier can help as well, but they don't go to these places um yeah, I said no. Because we can't drive, we can't drive after dark. We can't use the lights. And I said, "We'll get you again." Um, two days later, his house was burning. Uh, I, I went back through that village and, and the shelling, and and um, we got a woman. But he lived two houses down. I, I couldn't find the body, but the house had been hit maybe an hour before we came. And he was an old man, Peter, but uh, but he was a human being, and I and I I, you know, I... I don't blame myself, but I blame myself. Uh, I've also seen a man, his children, he refused to leave his home. Uh, not even five kilometers away from there. And uh, the police came with us one day and, and the police don't come. It's only the army. Uh, but they were child welfare police, a very special police officers, 10 year old, 12 year old boy and a girl and and i used to give them snickers see i used to i you know i watch all the old movies. you know the I, I know how you do it as a soldier yeah you bribe the people with chocolate um cigarettes for the men but i i used to give them snickers and he, and he didn't want to leave he didn't want to leave because he wanted to bring all his worldly possessions and uh i i had to well someone took the kids but i i had to put him in a body bag uh his children seen him um uh, a russian mortar came in and hit the yeah, me and a 19-year-old girl, a paramedic, a Ukrainian girl, we, we bagged him up, and, and I knew the children. That's enough about, yeah, that's the stuff. That's the stuff you wanted to hear.
0: Yeah, you know, I don't know whether I wanted to hear it, but I, no. I, I certainly wanted to try to you know have a feeling of what it must have been like for you to go through some of these things. And I, whenever you mention the children, it seems... You know, we, we like to think that when it gets that ugly and that bad, and the fighting is that uh, going on that long, that somehow the children are moved out of those areas. But clearly, they're not. I mean, you're still seeing kids in these in these areas, um, you know, around Bakhmut and not far from Bakhmut, uh, to, that are left there while, while you know while the shelling is going on.
2: Well. Um... I'm speaking beyond my bounds, but uh, I've been around long enough. I, can, I suppose I can do it a couple of times here and there. Um, the government in Ukraine, uh, a couple of people have tried to cr- trick question me. Have you ever seen an atrocity that the Ukrainians committed? Um, but the, Maybe they have happened, but I've not seen one. I, I honestly haven't seen one. Um, it seems to me that the government is and, and much of the army is so concerned about doing things right uh, like to, to maintain that moral high ground, there was never a legal mandate to force people from their homes. That has never been set in Ukraine. And I, I know that for a fact because I've assisted with the civilian work. But um, people, people say to me, no, that couldn't happen. You know, I grew up in New Brunswick and I know people who, who from Merrimachie, New Brunswick, it's a nice little community, but there's not much there. There's people that, might have been to Montreal once in their life, you know. They go to Cuba. They don't leave the resort. That's travelled. I'm not. I'm not trying to be diminutive in any way. But there's. I know one man who's. He's been to Fredericton once or twice in his life. So if you can't imagine a world beyond, um, those are the kind of people that that hold on for till the end. The people with money are gone. Some things never change, but uh, you can't force them to leave. And it's not about Russia or Ukraine for a lot of them. It's it's about home. That's what no one understands in the West. I I took me a long time to I don't even know if I understand it, Peter.
0: But you see that resolve, right? Even whether it's whether it's in Kyiv or whether it's in a small town like the, the one you just talked about. I guess they're not really small towns in the way we think of small towns in Canada,
2: but there's smaller communities. Some of them are. Uh, I, I've been to places that uh, had pre-war populations of two thousand. Um, Severs would be a, a perfect example because I know the the military administration, essentially the army mayor. Um, there's still one hundred under eighteen left in a town that that would have had about fifteen thousand prior to the war. So there's about one to two thousand, but he knows for a fact there's over there's almost one hundred under eighteen year olds still there. What's been the most rewarding thing for you about
0: this experience so far? You're going back. You're going back, what, in another month or so?
2: Um, Trust. Trust that I've developed. Um, Trust through big things or small things. uh, uh, All through my YouTube and my social media. uh, And and it's the same with Ukrainians. Uh, If you don't have a social media and you don't fundraise, you have less. And I speak English. So usually I make good on my promises, eight out of 10 times, if I'm honest. Um, so I have trust there, but my professional competency, uh, it's not great. Uh, I'm, I'm now qualified to work under 10 drugs. But, you know, after 13 months, the first time in a combat setting had I ever applied an, an IV. Uh, now, now that was a big mental hurdle when I learned to pierce somebody's veins um and and to run drug protocols uh but my my last month in avdivka um we got hit by a missile outside of our house and 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 two of the guys were were injured and we lost our cats but it was the first time i did it and i've done it in hospitals i've done it in in medical points and buildings and vehicles i'd never done it in the dark in the mud the blood the glass and i had two guys and you know what i that's not special like for a paramedic but it was special to me i was i was the guy for, you know for 5 minutes i made it. that's simple but i i was really proud of that and and a couple of those boys are my friends those are the real soldiers like the those are the real soldiers
0: how do you um how are you using this time to to decompress over I'm not I'm not.
2: You, can, um, you can't, or you're just not. Well, I I had to come home here to sort out some personal matters, um, and I thought I would use it as an opportunity to to speak to people like yourself. Um, CBC in London has been so supportive of me, uh, Chris and and Steph, yeah. uh, fantastic. They they've helped me meet people. Uh, Times Radio, for example, there, there, there's professionals on. I'm not. I'm not trying to blow sunshine up you, but I've talked to professionals on your level who've achieved uh, in British media, uh, who've interviewed prime ministers. Also with YouTube, we have a big, big community on there. If if Ukraine won't be covered in the mainstream, well, some stars have risen. Um, I've been to Estonia, to Finland, to Denmark, to England, and now I'll come to Canada, and I'll finish off with Texas, uh, with about 30 engagements, and probably about four or five people on if I can say so, on, on your level, uh, or, you know, uh, I'm tired. I'm very, very, very tired, um, but I've been very successful for our work. Uh, what are you trying to
0: achieve through these, you know, interviews and, and sessions with journalists
2: and others around the world? Well, I'm a foreigner who got blown up in a minefield, uh, and, and that made my stock rise a long time in August. Uh, And I seen how the social media worked for the war. Um, The biggest thing that I've achieved on this trip so far was actually the most abstract thing you would ever think. I did an interview for the German firefighters magazine, but we have a German organization who supports our medical efforts, firefighters and the army. Um, They will get direct donations from a very specific publication and type of reader Um, That will have the biggest direct impact uh, times radio uh, which is fantastic i did well with them i was asked to go back again with a woman named kate gerbo they're interested now in what's called a frontline series where perhaps i could introduce uh some of the company commanders that i've worked for who 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 speak good english and and like i bought this microphone just to talk to you you know it's 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 200 and some dollar microphone it's a nice one um but but i I didn't bring my laptop to the war, but this time I'll bring it back. Um, there's people out there who want to hear this stuff. Most of the world doesn't, so so I'm very grateful for your time. Uh, but in my estimation, there's about ten or twenty million people without Ukrainian blood that that every day they're looking in on us. Uh, they send donations. They send. They, they don't let us go. That's what I'm doing. I've been
0: amazed, actually, uh, Brandon, when you, uh, when you mentioned it, that um, just how engaged the Canadian audience is to the story. Certainly, the, the audience for, for my program here. We, we've devoted one day a week, basically since it began, um, to just Ukraine. Um, and we haven't wavered on that. Uh, and, and the the uh, clearly the audience is engaged because they listen to it and they respond to it and they talk about it and you know Canada obviously has a connection with Ukraine um, uh, more so than most countries in the world um, and very much so and they uh, and they and they're still engaged. Um, let me ask you a, a personal question because it kind of refers back to something you said uh, as we began our conversation about your relationship with God. Yes, um, you know I've been in some difficult places in in the world, and uh, while I don't have the strength of the the that that relationship that you have, I do question God as a result of some of the things I've seen. That are you know, if there's a God, how can this happen? How can we witness? How can I see this and still believe that there's a God? So. You know, you've seen far worse things than I've seen, and you've been in the middle of stuff. And you've, you know, as you said, you, you know, you were bombed yourself. Um, Do you do you ask that question? And what's the answer?
2: Mm -hmm. Um, I act as if God exists, Um, but I've seen. And I struggle with this because I said I, I said I debated with God for many, many years, you know, growing up in a Catholic family. Uh, then I even tried on my my uncle's Baptist uh, faith, uh, but it didn't sit right for me. Wonderful man. I, I've seen. I've, I've seen it through through people, I've seen God through people, I've seen it through um, I've seen it through young girls who, who are, are medical students. Who, who leave Lviv, they don't have to, you know, they, they, they could have stayed. They work on ambulance crews. They work 12 hours a day. I've, I've seen soldiers. Um, I, I've seen things almost verging on supernatural, Peter, you know, pe- people, pe- there's people that don't die in this war. I, I don't know how, you're not even going to take me serious. Uh, you know, if I said that to you, but I've, the, there's some people that despite all they've been through and, and the worst place I've ever been, and they were there for five days after that, okay, uh, it gets worse, but they're still alive and they're still going every day. I, I don't know. Mathematically, it's, it's, and many people die every day, every, every, every day. And I, have if, if a cat, I've done some things, Peter, but I'm not, I've seen, there's some people who've done a lot more, and uh, there has to be something keeping them going, other than just their their professionalism, their their, their luck. Their I can't explain it. It makes no sense. <laughs> yeah.
0: What um? What are you expecting when you go back? Do you do you do you fear going back? Do you worry about? I mean, you you mentioned earlier how. You're afraid going in, but when you're there, the the fear kind of disappears or dissipates at least. So you that's must, the last... Yeah, yeah you, you must be going through a bit of that as you approach a time in another month or so when you go back. You must be worried about that.
2: When I talk about that fear, that's that's the last couple of miles. You know what I mean? Um, but uh, r- right now at this point... I'd say my fear, my, my biggest fear is that I won't live up to it. Um, have you ever heard of imposter syndrome? Mm-hmm. Yeah, pe- people, now I don't want to call myself successful, but I, I, I came to Ukraine with no pretense. And I said, whatever you do, Brandon, just tell the truth. Whether it's your lack of experience or whatever. Um, but in, in terms of, of of many foreign volunteers, I, I have contributed a great amount, um, and I hope I hope to exceed that. And I hope I, I see more value in my own life now because of what I've done. I, I hope I can I can do the same or or better, or certain if if the same it would only be different. Uh, I put all the pressure on myself. I, I it, it's a great pressure, but that's okay because you don't know what I know. I I'm the one who has to live with me. Have you made
0: friends? And I, I, I ask that seriously because there will be people who will tell you that in these kind of situations, you actually can't afford to make friends
2: because you don't know what will happen tomorrow. We, um, well, we don't name the cats and dogs. We adopt them, uh, the strays and all the army positions. But uh, if that's what you mean but no i made real good friends and and the reason i stayed in ukraine uh he sh- he's a grandfather he shouldn't even be there um he was the he was the chief medical officer for first armored brigade that that was my first war war but he as busy as it was he came all the way over cuz i was the first foreigner they ever had and and he'd served uh with the canadians he served with other units on united nations missions um he understood the value but, but this is this is a man of Lieutenant Colonel rank who gave me a hug. Um, <laughs> that wouldn't fly in Ottawa, Petawawa, it's not bad. certainly with an RCR. Um, I don't know about the Vandus but uh, do you understand we' we're, we're in a different time in a different culture um yeah, I got friends. I got friends I got friends who were worried about me. Uh, my friend Maxine uh, his neighbor's house got hit by artillery the other day because we rotated in and out from the front to rear houses but he's worried about me because pictures of my social media do in all these interviews. He says, you look tired, my friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got real good. I've got some damn good friends, Peter. Um, yeah.
0: Um, you know what? I, I think we're going to, uh, we're going to call this a day on the, on this interview, but I know we're going to talk again. And, uh, you know, at least I hope I can wedge myself into your busy, uh, media schedule when you get back to, uh, back to Ukraine. Um, and we will check in with you to see how, how it's going this time around. I mean, all we can all hope is that somehow this thing is going to come to, you know, it's going to come to an end of some sort in the, you know, sooner rather than later. But, um, Given how long it's already run, so much longer than we thought it would, uh, it's hard to make predictions on this front. But um, uh, you know, you've opened our eyes to a lot of what you've been through, and really, just uh, I guess, scratching the uh, the surface of what you've been through. But we'll uh, we'll do more uh, in the days, uh, weeks,
2: months ahead. I'm so grateful for you having me, and uh, it's I I watched you growing up. I'm a high school dropout, but here I'm talking to Peter Mansbridge. Uh, my it? family's quite proud um, and and friends of mine that are in Ukraine, a friend from Saskatchewan. You, you're talking to Peter Mansbridge? Holy, you know, <laughs> but I just want to say thank you because uh, I know you've covered Ukraine every week. And I don't know if you'll edit this out, but that CBC foreign correspondence team, they fight hard for us, you know, uh, Steph and Chris. Absolutely. And I know that. And they try to push it across the line with the editors in Toronto because they care about what they're doing. Uh, but it's- I,
0: I know very well what you're speaking of and who you're speaking of. I mean, I've known Chris for a long time, Chris Brown. Uh, for those who are yes. listening, was a terrific correspondent. And Steph here I've known since the day she joined the CBC in the in the late 1980s. And I've been around the world with Steph uh, in my CBC days. And uh, they are, uh, you know, they are a terrific pair, and so is their their crew and they're totally dedicated to the job they do and to and to fighting to ensure that those stories get on the air, which sometimes is a is a hard slog, trying to convince the editors in Toronto.
2: that There's, there's a morality that, about you know, them. There really is. Yeah, no, um, they're uh, they're terrific, uh, terrific people. And uh, they're in South Sudan now. So let's just hope they're safer. Uh, we're, we're safer than them now. Yeah. Let's just.
0: Well, thank. The, the thing about them is they're they're smart. They're not. They're not trying to be heroes. They're trying to tell a story, yeah. and uh, and and they're careful. Um, but listen, Brandon, thank you so much uh, for doing this, and we will stay in touch. And uh, it's, um, well, it's it's just been really enlightening listening to you and informative, uh, very much. So thank you for doing this. Very grateful. Brandon Mitchell, I remember that name. A uh, remarkable young Canadian uh, with a remarkable story to tell, um, and we wish him uh, safe travels in his uh, in his time ahead. He is eventually heading back to uh, Ukraine. Well, that was your. Encore episode for this week, the inside story from the front lines of Ukraine, a fascinating story told by a young Canadian who's been in Ukraine in the fight against Russia for the last couple of years. Before we go, a quick advisory about tomorrow. Remember, Thursday's your turn in the random ranter and your turn this week. The question of the week, it's been out there for a couple of days. What have you got to say about it? One thing you like best about winter in Canada. That's the question. What's the one thing you like best about winter in Canada? As I said, a little different than the kind of heavy stuff we've been dealing with the last few weeks. Time for something a little easier. But be innovative. Come up with some good ideas about what the one thing you like best about winter in Canada. That's coming up tomorrow on the bridge. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again in 24 hours.